This is May It Please the Internet, a podcast brought to you by Revision Legal, lawyers who represent businesses that make money online. Hey everyone, this is John DiGiacomo of Revision Legal, and you are listening to the May It Please the Internet podcast. And I'm joined again by my partner, Eric Mesterovich. Hello, Eric. Hi, John. How are you? I'm good. And today we are talking about some fun stuff, purchase price and closing in a asset purchase deal. Now, we previously have covered the basics of what is an asset purchase deal? How is that process different than equity? You know, who are the parties to the agreement? What are you selling? What are you not selling? But this week we want to talk about the purchase price and closing. Eric, I'll let you start with purchase price. Tell us what you know and how we get there. Yeah, well, it's the most important term in the entire agreement. If you're the, probably both sides, you know, how much are you paying? How much are you getting? One of the first things that I look at whenever uh, an APA comes around to my desk to review, and it can surprisingly be complicated. There's many different ways to slice it depending on who the buyer is and how sophisticated they are and what's kind of important to them and, and how they set it. You know, we've certainly seen all of these in, in one form or the other, but the purchase price is I, the seller, am going to receive this amount of money in exchange for basically all of the assets related to the underlying business and the usual ways we see it, right? There's maybe one upfront payment that is paid at closing. And then oftentimes there's deferred payments that are spread out. And and we'll talk a little bit more about that. But I mean, John, we've seen price provisions where there's actually not a number. It goes into this calculation of seller discretionary earnings or SDE and, and some kind of multiple of that, right? Yeah. SDE, EBITDA, you know, earnings before interest, taxes, depreciation, and amortization, often, you know, 4X multiple of EBITDA, we will pay you 4X of EBITDA or 4X of SDE. So yeah, those are always fun because I deeply enjoy when there is a single purchase price and nothing else. It makes my life so much easier, (laughs) but we see these all the time and it, it makes sense. Talk a little bit about SDE. When do you see SDE? Why would somebody want to use SDE? Yeah, I see it more, usually more for deferred payments. You know, if the SDE hits a certain target, then the seller would receive a certain percentage of SDE thereafter, you know, often referred to maybe as a performance payment or something like that. And from, you know, buyer and seller side equally, you have to really look at the definition of SDE because theoretically give a buyer an opportunity to basically run up some expenses and make that number artificially lower. At the same time, you do want the seller to have expenses in terms of advertising expenses and things like that to move the product. So it's a little bit of a balance. I think how I typically handle it is you look to install some caps on things that kind of could get out of whack if they were left completely unchecked. So things like administrative overhead, salaries, legal expenses, things like that, where you don't want there to be an ability to kind of abuse that calculation. 
otherwise like the business terms and the business relationship, you know, everyone's on the same page to make money here. So there's always some level of trust, but I think it's always a good idea to cap some of those expenses within SDE. Yeah, I agree. I, so I, I want to talk a little bit about what I see as market, meaning, you know, what is the the common type of term that I see when there's a a non-specific number for a purchase price. And typically you'll see SDE where it's a smaller business or the business is run by a single owner. And there might be a lot of aggressive use of personal expenses, like the car is on the balance sheet or the owner has traveled quite a bit. So in those cases, it makes a whole lot of sense to use SDE. And I agree to add a cap and also to discuss what is a proper expense to be deducted. And then in larger deals, I'll see EBITDA as a, you know, in in a larger business that's more sophisticated, has better built out processes, whatever it might be. It seems that that is more market and better tuned for venture capital. For example, venture capitalists want to see EBITDA. They don't want to see SDE. And as an idea of what I typically see as compensation for a deal, it's usually some flat amount up front. So let's say $10 million up front and then a performance payment based on EBITDA 24 months later that is capped at some amount. So if the business reaches 4X EBITDA over a 24-month period, you get up to 1 million, but never over 1 million or something like that. That's usually what we see. And then there's some back-end compensation typically if the seller remains on to help consult or you know becomes an employee of the acquiring business. Do you see similar things, Eric? Yep, that all makes sense. I think it's pretty consistent with what I see. There, there's also sometimes just a straight holdback, just maybe 10% of the purchase price where it's held back for maybe six months or a year uh, to cover potential for indemnification. I know everyone's really on pins and needles for our indemnification episode. Yes, absolutely. (laughs) APA talk. It's an important one, but it's not the easiest. It's normal for a buyer to want to have a pool of money that they can play with if problems come up and they do need to seek indemnification to have some money there. Those holdback payments are usually, there's no trigger other than passage of time to pay them. So, you know, so much time has passed, it is time to pay that money if no claim for indemnification has been made. And that's that holdback, deferred stabilization performance payments. That's, that's the terminology we're seeing a lot of. Let me ask you something. I swear that I spend 90% of my effort and deals working on this, working on the deferred payment. And what are the parameters of the deferred payment? Do you find that to be the same for you? Yeah. I mean, it depends. Like, so from the seller side, it really depends who is the buyer. Some buyers I've worked with so many times that I understand their agreements very well. I think they're relatively straightforward. Other sellers can really complicate things. And I think it goes into, or I'm sorry, other buyers. To me, it's almost a maturity level of doing these deals where, I don't know, to me, it's overcomplicated. When we're representing buyers, you know, we get a little bit more context as to the deal overall. 
And there's all kinds of outside pressures that kind of go into that. But yeah, it can create a lot of headache because the sellers want to get paid as soon as possible. And, you know, they're going to be fighting and clawing for payments faster than we want to make them. You know, you can't just have a performance of 24 months and then pay the next day. There's going to need to be some time to account for what happened and reconcile things. And especially if you're dealing with larger buyers, they need to line up these payout dates in a way that makes sense administratively. They can't just have a payment due every other day. They try to line them up so it you know, is easier to kind of handle. Yeah. The reason I asked that question too is I swear that the level of anxiety that goes into this process of deferred payments could power the sun because it's been my experience. I've never seen one of our buyers not make a deferred payment except for where the assets couldn't be transferred or in the case of Amazon, for example, the account was suspended as a result of some action that occurred prior to closing. Have you ever seen somebody not make a deferred payment? I have, but it's been in pretty rare circumstances where it was really the fund itself was going under. They still made it. It took a long time and there was some negotiation to to get some money. But I agree with you in that like the level of distrust is not proportional to reality. Like everyone thinks there's all of these bad things are going to happen. And of course we have to account for those and put in guardrails to make sure someone can't just go crazy. But the business part of this just kind of prevails. Like if they really try to intentionally not make money, how does that help the buyer? You know, it doesn't make sense. Yeah. My thing is always, okay, you're both, I mean, contractual language is like a gun, right? Like it, it is, it's leverage, but ultimately lawsuits are mutually assured destruction. So both parties, if somebody doesn't get paid, are at risk and making the language better or more onerous doesn't change that level of risk. You know, you're still getting it sued. If you're a buyer and you don't pay your earnout and it's justifiably owed, at the end of the day, the language is the language and it doesn't really have that large of an effect on the outcome because you're still going to get sued. So it's just interesting to me that there's so much wheel spinning and time spent just on these few terms when the reality is from a litigation perspective, they're not as important, I think, as we give them the effort for. Yeah, I agree. I mean, you can really get hung up on it and feel like you're being treated unfairly because maybe for a seller, you think the payment is taking too long or something, but there's just so much that goes into it as a buyer that they need to have some wiggle room. They also don't want you to turn around and sue them (laughs) if they needed a couple more days to make a payment. So of course they're going to ask for and probably demand probably more time than they need to do it. If I'm the buyer, I'm 100% making those terms the way I want them within reason, but I think the buyer is going to control for the seller. You know, it needs to be market. They need to be paying, I don't know, 30, 45 days after the payment, the kind of calculation period has expired. It's probably reasonable, you know, and you should have access to the books and records, not full access, but limited access to confirm their calculations and there maybe should be a procedure to handle disagreements, but nine times out of 10, that procedure says, we're going to try to figure it out ourselves first. 
And then we're going to have this super complicated thing if we can't figure it out. And nobody wants to go down that road. No, they really don't. It, it just a good example is I'm working on a deal now and there was a lawsuit involving the seller and the seller was going through a dispute with his partner and our client had asked us, will you look at this to make sure it has any, our clients, the buyer, they asked if we would look at it to make sure there was no effect on the ability to purchase the assets. And I look back at the docket and it's five years of litigation. They probably spent a million dollars on it. And ultimately, you know, very little money exchanged hands. And it's interesting that there seems to be a disconnect between M&A attorneys and litigation where stuff that doesn't matter seems to matter a lot in an M&A deal and stuff that does matter doesn't. And it's a very interesting world. It, it helps to have litigation experience in negotiating these things. And I think it informs the way that we negotiate the important parts of the purchase price. But yeah. I'm dealing with that from the opposite end right now, where we are about to start litigation over an APA and I'm dealing with the transactional APA attorney and they're telling me things, their position. And then I just keep responding and I say, I do not understand your legal position based on the language of the agreement. I understand your, what you're complaining about, but I don't understand how that is a viable claim under the language. I mean, those are, there's two very different things and we are well beyond, you know, these kind of general complaints or something that I'm phrasing them as general complaints. And I've asked many times for a legal explanation. I'm still yet to get one. So we will see. Yeah, that's a great point. And that is, I think the point was implicit that though I'm saying some of this language doesn't matter, it does in a lot of ways because it needs to be clear, it needs to be enforceable. And the language in the agreement is all the language between the parties. It is not, well, he said this during due diligence and he said this prior to the letter of intent being signed. None of that matters. At the end of the day, that document's the document that controls the relationship between the parties. And what it says goes. So I don't want to give short shrift to the language of the agreement. It is very important. Yeah, but I think what you're getting at is, listen, the payment's due and there's a calculation. Like if the buyer and the seller without the attorneys can read that and understand what it means, then you're probably not going to be like super far off a year or 24 months later. You know, like indemnification and inventory things and third-party lawsuits and those can be complicated, but like in earnout, well, there's a calculation, you know, we all know what it is. And this is the time period. There's not a whole lot to argue about. And then you either hit it or you don't. And most of the time you do, you know, but I get it that yes, this language is the only thing that matters, but I don't know why we have to fight so much about these deferred payments. I think they should be relatively straightforward. Yeah, I agree entirely. Let's talk about inventory and making inventory payments. So typically we're going to see this in a asset purchase agreement involving an e-commerce company, potentially an Amazon FBA seller, for example. When do inventory payments occur and, and how does that process work? Yeah, I mean, we're going to do a little brief review here of how we see inventory and APAs. Inventory and dealing with it all and legally could probably be a whole podcast on its own. But what we usually see is you're, there's either all the inventory is paid up front, right? You estimate how much there is at closing. 
the buyer pays that amount to the seller at closing. And then you go back later and true it up within 40, 60 days as to any fluctuations. That's normal. Now you can go anywhere from there. You can say, well, I'll pay you 50% of the inventory payment or 75% and then I'll pay the rest later. There's a ton of variables. You can also do straight consignment where you're not really paying anything. You're just going to pay the seller the inventory landed cost as it sells, maybe every quarter, six months or something where you are you're not going out of pocket up front. I think more common I see is really the estimate of the entire amount in paying, if not the total amount, most of the amount at closing. Yeah, I agree with you. And I think the caveats to that are, you know, stuff on containers. What do we do with that? Stuff that hasn't yet to arrive, you know, damaged inventory that might be discovered during handover, those types of things. I also want to just put a note here because it's something that I've seen lately. Going through this APA process, make sure you're talking to suppliers. If you're a buyer, you need to understand what's going on with the supplier because we've discussed this before and getting your contracts in order and all that stuff. But as you're doing these inventory calculations and determining the purchase price and figuring out what you're going to pay for the inventory, if there's not a written agreement that can be assigned, they're going to jack up that price. And the other one that we see frequently now is the supplier comes out of nowhere and says they have a patent that covers the product that wasn't disclosed during due diligence. So getting your head around these types of issues and and understanding what's being shipped, when is it being shipped, you know, where is it at, what does it cost, how are we going to true up or or do this, uh, you know, this reconciliation is very, very important in this process. Yeah, I mean, the nuts and bolts, like pay this at closing and then reconcile later, that part isn't that complicated. The complicated part is if you're a buyer, you're buying a business for an incredible amount of money that may not have a single contract in existence. And you are not entirely positive those terms that the current seller is getting with that supplier are going to continue. So, you know, usually contract around that and include a representation and warranty that they're not aware of anything, seller's not aware that there's going to be any changes. You usually want to be able to place an order or in the very least have an introduction to the supplier during what we defined as the migration process where you've closed, but the payment of the money has not been released out to the seller yet. Introductions to suppliers and confirming pricing terms is usually a requirement to happen during that period of time. Whether or not you're going to do it before is kind of discretionary. Like some buyers want to do it, others don't. Some sellers invite that, some don't. That's one where it takes probably a little bit more feel and experience in running these kinds of businesses to figure out the right path. You know, when you talk about talk to your suppliers though, I've also had the other way around where a seller day before closing, talks to his supplier and is kind of joking around with them. And then they say, oh, by the way, we're going to be raising prices. And if he just would not have been having that conversation, there would never have been an opportunity to be told that. But now it was told to him. Now he does have notice. It is, we are closing in 12 hours. (laughs) And... 
and now we have to disclose it. You know, I mean, he, it was, for me, it was not a close call. You have to disclose that it's going to come out. If the price goes up, it is coming out. And then you are going to look real bad that you are lying to someone that you're in an agreement with them for the next two or three years to receive these deferred payments. You should not be starting out lying to them. We were able to resolve it and nothing changed except the closing date. But, you know, if you're selling, keep those conversations to a minimum with suppliers. Yeah. And if you're buying, price in the risk into the purchase price. So don't overpay for an asset where the market rate for the supplied product is so vastly different from what is currently being received from the current supplier of the seller that you can't switch. It just is like such a basic thing, but a lot of people don't do it. And the other side of that too is make sure that if you use a holdback amount, that the holdback amount is sufficient to cover the difference between what the supplier is currently selling the product to you for and what a third party would sell that product to you for so that you can offset that loss if this occurs after closing. Yep. Very important. Well, you've got a parting shot for today. Eric, what do you want to say? Yeah, I do. It's about if you are starting a lawsuit or about to be in a lawsuit or already in a lawsuit, do not email people or text people about your lawsuit. Do not do it ever. Nothing good is going to come from telling your high school buddy and sending them a detailed email about what is going on in a lawsuit, how you're getting screwed, or how you did this, or they are saying that. Do not put this stuff in writing. It is all discoverable in litigation, meaning you're going to have to turn it over to the other side. And the conversations you have, friends or family about litigation are they don't have to be bad to damage your case. You don't want to give the other side an inch ever. You don't want to give them anything that they can use. And if they have these casual conversations between you and your friends and family, you could give them something that, that ends up working against you. And people don't ever think about this. I know when we do this, you know, oftentimes it comes up where the client says, oh, well, maybe they'll forward us an email from someone. And you're like, oh, my God. Why are you emailing them? And by the way, don't forward my emails to them either. Our emails are private, they're confidential. Let's keep it all between us. If you want to talk about it, go ahead, call them, pick up the phone and talk. Do not put this stuff in writing ever. It will never, ever help your case. I agree entirely. The one that I see recently is I'm on a number of e-commerce forums on the internet and we have clients there or third parties will ask questions about legal stuff and they'll give specifics. And I just want to say, what are you doing? You can't do this. You can't talk about this potential legal issue that you have in public because this is all discoverable. And any strategic decisions that you think you're making are not strategic at all because they are discoverable and your, your strategies are discoverable because they're not protected by attorney-client privilege. The funny one that I always like is we settle a case and the client immediately goes on an internet forum and then talks about the settlement and what they settled for. And of course the settlement agreement has a non-disclosure clause and you're just like, what the, what are you doing? You're, you are completely in violation of the settlement agreement. Yeah. So yeah, I, I agree entirely. Also good advice, apps like signal or WhatsApp still discoverable. Even when you have the destroy feature on, 
if you're in litigation, that's spoilation of evidence. You have to keep your communications if you're in active litigation or under the threat of litigation. So it's not enough to just use one of those apps and text your friends and say, hey, uh, you know, this is going to be destroyed. Do that. Because if somebody finds out about it, you're looking at sanctions. And I've seen attorneys get sanctioned for it before. Yeah. I mean, there's a reason why everyone says no comment when they're talking about lawsuits. And this is why there's just no benefit can come from it. There's none, zero. It's never going to help. So just do not do it. Yep. I agree entirely. Well, thank you, Eric, as usual. This again has been the Revision Legal Podcast. May it please the internet. And we will see you next time. 